very warm welcome to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Architecture at Kingston School of Art. Today we're chatting with Tom and Will Wimshurst, Director at Wimshurst Pelleretti here in Putney in South London. Uh, we're going to be looking at the practice which develops its own buildings, a gamekeeper turned poacher in some respects, with a team often working both as architect and as client. So, Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you very much for having me to your office. Let's start by you telling our listeners, if you would, about where you studied, what you studied, uh, and how you got into practice together. So I started, uh, I started in a traditional way. I basically ended up doing... A, this is Will, by the way. <laughs> I, ended up, I ended up doing an architecture degree at Oxford Brookes University, um, and then I ended up uh, doing my part two at uh, Westminster, um, I ended up working for Richard Rogers both during my part two and also um, and also afterwards, doing all sorts of buildings, that, uh, all sorts of buildings, all sorts of variations, and that's how I really got. And and Tom, I know through being my brother, uh, and so unfortunately that's how we also got to know each other. Okay, and I took a more circuitous route to architecture through being in the army, through being a ski bum, um, followed by. A master's degree because I couldn't figure out what to do, followed by working for a range of software companies selling software. I'm the sales guy, I'm the guy who probably has more of an eye on the money, so it's natural potentially to marry up the, the guy who understands or cares a little more about the, the money side and, and, the, and the design side. And the, the two together probably create an architect's practice that can develop because obviously, I, we, I, it was always my thinking that. And architects have all the skills to be a developer, but, but someone needs to have more of an eye on the money. Yeah. And that's where I come in. Okay. And, and when did this partnership happen? We've been doing our own little, uh, little developments on the side when I was working at Rogers since about 2000. Um, and so probably, so we've always been doing little, little bits and it sort of got to a point where we ended up having a six unit scheme and we decided to have a go really. It sort of, it seemed to be too big a, big a scheme to basically do on the side. And so it gave us an opportunity and we picked up a number of other little projects as well, which allowed for a bit of cash flow to also come in. Um, and I think we hired somebody almost immediately and Tom stayed out in, uh, in his normal job, which also then subsidised a little bit of my income. And so we did it sort of carefully, carefully, but that's really how we sort of started, started right, work right. on our path. And then from Wimshurst to Wimshurst Pelleretti, what's that about? Uh, Leo Pelleretti was, uh, we, we met at uh, Rogers. He's also, he used to work for Renzo, and then ended up coming to uh, Rogers with me. Um, and when I sort of said that we were, I was leaving, he suddenly came along and said, uh, oh, by the way, I might have something that uh, we could work on. And so we ended up working with him on um, Gwynn Road, was at, uh, the 14-storey tower that we now have, allowed us to basically sort of, we worked on that. Um, and uh, so, and that really sort of crystalled how well we worked together and really the sort of collaboration and that's how Winchester's Pelleriti came along um, as far as sort of uh, sort of natural progression really. All right, good. So look, your website says it fairly boldly. We develop our own buildings and though in some cases we act as both architect and client. So is that, you started with that in mind? Yeah, very much so. So how did it, how did you get the first commission? What was the process? First commission as an architect or as a developer? Both. So, so we, we were working on a six-flat scheme in Clapham before we started the business. So right. It was that six-flat flat development of our own that 
meant we, we felt that there was an opportunity to, to do more of that in a practice. Well, so, sorry, very quickly. So you were an architect on that project and you were like the financial controller in the yeah. office or something or were you both working as designers? We were working on the side on that project as the developer. And right. So we were the, the architect and the developer. We brought in a main contractor for that project so we had someone build that out for us but we were working okay. as, a, as a single team. But go back a step. Like how the hell did that happen? We bought a flat in Clapham in 2002 and then we did all the work ourselves. We bought a house in Earlsfield by remortgaging and taking some money out and putting it into the next one. So you literally did the work. And then we bought a house in Earlsfield, which we did the work on, and we literally did the work. But gradually, you're 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 asking more. You're giving more and more to contractors to do, uh, and it becomes more and more professional. When we got to a six flats clean in Clapham, we realised. This is actually potential to be a real business. We ended up having a flat, we ended up buying a flat below, so we ended up being able to know that we could split that into three units. Um, then we ended up looking at a party wall agreement with the neighbours, um, uh, although, but they ended up flattening our fence and chopping down all of our trees. Uh, so we had almost were in a legal obligation. Tom went around and had a, had a conversation with them. Had a word and with them. Uh, they turned out to be lovely people. Uh, right. We ended up basically doing a joint approach and that's really sort of how things started. So what could have been a terrible start <laughs> actually turned out to be a really positive way of working. Yeah, so in terms of then you buying up properties, is that what you're doing now or are you now into land development and... I think there's a range. There's a there's a range from both buying the land and developing it ourselves uh, across to architecture and client typical relationship through to shades of grey in the middle, whereby we're working with landowners to add value to their land, perhaps through the planning process, and taking a stake in that rather than just giving them a formal fee proposal. But you've raised your lifestyle above dirtying your hands, building on site now, yeah, lifting floor. Not do that anymore. No. Okay. Those days are gone. Uh, to an extent, we have become, as well as the developer and the architect, the main contractor on all of our sites recently. And partly coming about because we weren't getting the right price we wanted to from the tender. Yeah. We sort of forced our way down a particular route, but actually it's a route that we're now very comfortable with. More as a construction manager rather than main contractor, whereby we employ a project manager who subcontracts everything out for us. But it's a, it's a route that we're perhaps more comfortable with. As, as an architect, we're intrinsically involved in the project anyway. Um, so we have much more of a say in each of those subcontractors as we walk through the through the process. And I think also we we've set up a practice that's very much starting from the beginning from nose to tail. So we want to start off with concepts and the Rogers and and learning that side of it. We really learned a very very strong way of being able to do a very clear design, a very clear diagram and being able to fend that through all the various different pitfalls that come through in order to try and get that to, uh, to planning. So we've known that and that I was very lucky because I worked on a number of small projects in Rogers and so I ended up seeing a lot of good site work but also seeing the slightly smaller side of uh, some of the architecture as well as some of the bigger projects. But it meant that I had a, an easier transition probably into, into practice than maybe some other people would be in a, in a larger practice. And, and then is it purely you're working on development now or do you still do commissions for clients in a traditional kind of we're, way? We're, I think we're probably about 70% traditional architecture with shades of grey within that um, depending on but then 30% is probably our own development um, development work 
um, as well. What uh, we find is that actually the proportion works very nicely um, and maybe there could be a slightly, I think we can grow as it would grow the size of both of those projects as we go through that. But uh, it's nice that client work and traditional architecture work has a sort of sinusoidal way of working. So it's very, and there's lots of points in on that process that a project can stop through no fault of your own and through no control of your own. And I think in some ways that allows us to maneuver our own projects in and around those dips and when those when and when those projects stop, which allows us to be a far more flatlining that, that that sort of curve in terms of when we how we deal with our resources and how we actually create a very stable business. So have you got some super duper time management project planning software program here, have you? To, with I wish I did for for a man called Bill Gates. <laughs> I think resourcing is, is one of the hardest things you can ever do. You only can actually, you can resource and then pretty well day, the next day is completely wrong. So I think we have, uh, we very much have an open source type principle within the office. Our resourcing is very much done by, so we have about 13 to 15 people in the office. That's sort of where we sort of fluctuate at the moment. And I think we are also looking, we have resources done by a number of people in the office. So the sort of people running the various different teams. And so we, we try and allow everybody to have an understanding of where we stand, um, and the same for money as well. They, everyone, ha- everyone can see what we earn and our fees that we earn from those projects. And we have a piece of software that allows us to be able to keep a track of time, uh, time sheets and how that, the programming works as well as being able to keep on resources. Okay. So in terms of this architect-developer dichotomy or harmony, how do you, what's the best word for this? Harmony. Beautiful. Right, good. You say that working in this way gives you an invaluable ability to understand the client's point of view and the construction process from every perspective. Obviously, you are the client in in many respects. Um, I was just wondering whether that meant that the process is less tense since you're doing like traditional procurement with a conventional client and that relationship do you find not just because you're brothers think, but i mean I think, you, from my perspective no, that's tense we're probably we're probably less likely to start off the process as you know some of our clients might do trying to reduce the cost of the build from the very start we're, we're likely to focus on the design at the start we will focus on the design Obviously, we are, like any developer, we need to, we have banks that lend to us and investors who expect certain things. So we can't ignore those economic parameters, but we can manage them as best we can to achieve the best possible design without immediately saying, oh, we have to you know, remove the greenery if we have to get rid of the, this or get rid of that. Um, we try to keep those things in. So we'll start off from a point of view of trying to deliver a good design rather than just trying to keep it as cheap as possible. Okay. I mean... I'm sure that in your conventional projects, you'd probably say the same sentence, wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 But then you're, you're potentially sometimes facing a client who might have other ideas. I think, I think in principle, we actually understand where the money is, where money is and where to put, probably place it. And I think you do the same job in both, both circumstances. There may be difficult decisions that you have to make, but there also may be difficult decisions that people force upon you. And I think there's, a, there's some ways it's, it's almost nicer to be able to have to make those decisions yourself and understand why you're making those and be able to actually work through that process than basically being told that you have to make a decision even if you don't believe in it. Which, probably is, which, is, which is where you can put yourself in the client's shoes when, they are making, when they're making a, a decision which you, you think might be wrong as an architect. We can understand why they're making decisions. But, there's not, but there will be pressures from the money men or whatever this pot of 
cash is is, is hidden. Yeah. They want they want to return <laughs> <Under> the bed. <laughs> they want to return, don't they? Yeah. So at some point there will be a pressure. Stop faffing about with your fancy design and just get it built. That yeah. kind of that yeah. kind of pressure. Yeah. Do you, how do you? And hopefully we strike that right balance. You know, communicating with them and making sure we're able to hit the the margins that they expect. Um, and delivering something that we're proud of. But is that any different to the pressures you'd be under if you're under a, a client that basically is also trying to keep hold of the I think yeah, I'm, very, I'm exactly saying the we recognise that that's a conflictual relationship. We've just talked about this as a harmonious relationship, and in fact there's similar pressures on you. There are, I would say, the harmoni- harmonious is what we are. Maybe I'm you started pushing, it. Maybe I'm pushing the fact. But the principles are, you know, when you're on site, for example, we're actually, because we're able to construct our buildings on site, one of the reasons for setting up and doing what we're doing is to try and create a bit more of a um, sort of cooperative yeah. process, a collaborative process in what we're trying to do. And I think we now, what we enjoy going down the construction route, because actually we're working with somebody rather than trying to basically hit them over the head with the contract. And I think when we come into doing our own buildings, and it's very different to some of the larger scale work that I used to do at Rogers, is that actually it becomes it, the pleasures become when it becomes less contractual, and you can talk through problems. You're always going to hit problems, and it's always tense, and there's always difficulties. But actually, being able to understand how you can get through that as a team, and being able to work on and actually work on how people being able to understand how you work, what you want to achieve out of it, we're still learning in that process and I think so as we go through the projects we start to refine the way that we can work people can understand what we want out of them and also what they need out of us in terms of for example what we need to draw how we draw a building so that or a package so that somebody can understand and get the best value out of that package because there's a very different thing between an architect drawing it and then how a a contractor wants to see it we've got a range of private investors yeah. who would be the people who are putting up the equity funding yeah. and we haven't gone to the market and spread ourselves far and wide with crowdfunding and regulatory regulated funding um, the, the people who have put in the funds so far are private individuals who we either know directly or know through someone else um, we haven't gone very far and very right. wide we haven't had to because we haven't done huge projects we haven't had to raise huge amounts of money I guess when it will maybe become more difficult in that sense is when and if we start doing larger projects where larger amounts of equity are is required um, then we may well need to be more regulated but probably by that stage we will probably have the sort of sizes of team and the infrastructure development infrastructure that will allow that um, and the sort of reporting you need for those sorts of individuals will be different to the ones we, we have now it's risky enough being an architect in as much as you have to carry out work uh, with the uncertainty that it might not get past planning through no fault of your own, as you say, um, and therefore you would never really fully realise the value of the design that you've you've put together. But I would have thought that this development world is an even higher level of risk and uncertainty. Is that am I right? Or are yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you say that with a smile on your face. Yeah. Well, I guess you know, spice there, of life. there are different ways you can approach a site. One is buying a site, in which case you're all in. Yeah. Uh, but then, in that sense, you may well need a mitigation plan. So if you bought a site and you hope to get planning on it, hopefully there's a, there's a fallback plan should you not get exactly what you want, whereby you're able to get out of it and break even, in which case you haven't lost that much, that yeah, much yeah. Apart, apart from time. Or, or if, you've, if, if it's a more complex one, you may want to have an option, in which case all you've lost is your investment in the planning process. 
and you don't go through the option because you haven't got planning permission. But there's also various different processes to, to actually get out of that, get out of the situation as you're going through the process. So you have pre-application meetings, you have various feasibilities, you can see those in quite a long way off. And I think one thing with uh, with the investors that we have, we have a contractor that's, that's the contractor developer that basically has invested. There's a lawyer. There's also and there's also a person who used to be in the city. And so it's very interesting having them come in and critique and also for us to be able to step back and have some hard questions being thrown at us. Actually, by assembling a group of people that can question what you're doing makes you, stops you running away with something that you can almost uh, lie to yourself or you can believe in your own rhetoric. And I think sometimes we can, we can easily do that. And I think it's being, it's being tested and being prompted on those questions. That's what, that's better than a QS doing it? Actually having a, the right QS and, or having somebody that really can test it, if something good at what they're doing and being able to see where the value is and seeing what the value is and where we're going to create it is, is invaluable. Correct value engineering is a good thing. Correct, the correct way of QSing is a, is a brilliant thing. These aren't things that can be negative, but they can often, they can often all of them can turn into a to go into an issue. Right. So is this a stressful career? Oh, no stress whatsoever. <laughs> just totally relaxed. Just like I'm on the beach every day. No, there are stressful moments. Uh, but there's stressful moments in any, in any job. This is true. Um, this is true. So, you know, I used to be a salesman with a target when you're not hitting your target each quarter. Something, yeah. Sometimes that happens. You're under stress yeah. and you're under pressure. Yeah. And you know, don't know where, where your next sale is going to come from. And it's the same. It's not, it's, it's different pressure, but the same. Did you have an example of a project that didn't go so well? I don't think we've got an example of a project from start to finish that's not gone well. There are parts of all projects that Of course, of course, of course. I mean, what I mean is in terms of we're kind of using you as an example of a, you know, a developer, uh, an architect developer, which is like odd, uh, at odds with what normally happens to architects. So all architects will know about the briggers and the perils and pitfalls of being an architect. But as an architect developer, was there something particular of a job that... I think the fact is you've got, there's no... Fact book, which you can turn to to learn to be a developer. You, need, you, you know, there will be people you can turn to to ask about stuff. You need to learn it on the job. That was some advice I was given years ago by a developer who said, "You can't learn it. You need to learn it by doing it." One particular project that didn't go well, but there are certainly aspects of all projects that, that uh, have troubled us. But you know, probably examples in projects that which perhaps we didn't anticipate, but we would do next time. During the digging of a basement, we did a utility search. There was no sign that a that a pipe might be there. But during the build process, the the this pipe was revealed, and it, first of all, the gas people denied its existence. Then the electric people denied its existence. Then the, then the water people denied its existence, and they did it again and again and again until we'd lost a month of work on the basement. Meanwhile, you've got a team by waiting to dig, and so you're losing money, which you hadn't. You know, there was. I say there's no way of anticipating. Probably there is now. But it wasn't at the time. It hadn't necessarily done so, and it was only resolved when a man from the the, the electricity board came down and hit it with a hammer. Believe it or not, um, to reveal that it was in fact an old gas pipe, but not a live one. You, you you need to have those experiences to learn what can go wrong on a construction project, and you need to learn them firsthand. And what the, probably the financial impact is on your project. But that has more impact on you as a business than it would you as an architect representing a separate client. Correct. So you have to. Build in a contingency in your project planning. Yeah. Okay. 
So that's the learning point, right? That's the learning point. And you know, the same the same project we basically also had running water running at, uh, at about two meters where we needed to hit three meters to basically dig the basement, and there was no real way of pumping. It was too strong, and we had to cast the basement in in the, in as where it where it stood. And so I think that we then had to redesign the building as we went through. But because we were involved in the construction, we were part, we were the contractor, we were also the architect at that point, we were able to work as a team to basically review that, review the levels, review how we basically went up the building. Not to say that was simple as they were building out the frame, but the way that basically we, we didn't then end up getting caught for uh, contractual um, obligations in terms of fees and lateness and, and changes because we were able to adapt that as we went through that. And I think those are, that's the collaboration element that I think really works when you're trying to work out how best to solve it as a team and rather than just somebody saying, well, it's not my problem. Yeah. And I think the other one was that there was an issue with, uh, with the steel work on that same, same project. You know, this is our first wonderful new build. Um, and so we had the same problem with the steel work. In the steel work, there was some issue with the welds on, on some of the steel. And so the, the structural engineer came down and condemned the whole lot. But then as soon as he, soon he found out that we, it was our own development, suddenly we were able to work with him and suddenly we kept it all with just getting another welder on board. Right. And I think that was a risk element that it sort of it gives you an indication of what you, know, what you can do yeah, if, yeah, uh, if yeah, you're working yeah, together. Yeah. And what about planning permission? Because obviously that's the, the big uncertainty. What kind of delays that do you build into your programming? For it doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily always matter, uh, the timeline. It depends on what, how, how you're working with the yeah, site. So, yeah. you know, how you negotiate your option, for example, on the site. You can't, you can't build in and say, well, we, this, this is a six-month option. Yeah. It needs to be based on, once you've applied for planning, you need to let it run. So you, as long as you've built in enough time, there isn't there a risk of that running over. Because you anticipated that, but yeah, it's it's pretty painful at the moment because you can ba- you can you can almost bet that it's not going to be un- done under. You're going to receive a phone call pretty well the day before you're meant to get planning, yeah. and you know that there's going to be an extension of at least two or three months that you're going to basically have to deal with. Yeah. So, in principle, we've had projects that are which uh, very few projects that basically get determined on time. And we have projects that are now still in planning three years after they first met, and they are going through. Not development projects, but they. This is the you know yeah, just yeah. in terms of the work that we undertake, and these are projects that are actually going through and getting planning and have got consensus. They're just sometimes taking a long time due to external issues. Yeah, it's not something you can plan for. No, no, I mean that's another podcast. Just to be clear, the architecture practice itself is not the developer that we have separate companies yes, right. that do the development. So will those two companies have an appointment document between them? No. And actually, we haven't seen a need for that. Um, but we manage it collaboratively. There is no separation necessarily. I work for the architecture practice and I work for the developer and we will say the same. Uh, separate accounts? They have separate accounts. Yeah. yeah. The, the finances are separate. They're legal separate entities. Um, right, right. But the architecture practice will be paid by the development company. So the, develop, the architecture practice is not put at risk by doing development. So if the architecture, if the development went up in flames, the architecture practice wouldn't. Good, good. That's the key thing. The architecture practice employ 15 people and the development business doesn't. And then in terms of your contractors, your consultants, you don't have any in-house contractors, do you? But you're hiring them in? Yeah. So developers will appoint those consultants. Right. Um, but coordinated by 
us working as a lead consultant. Right. To okay. We end up doing a lot more work in the construction stage because we end up taking on some of the design factors and and the sort of and drawing up various different elements of the design as we will go through, which might normally be pushed into a, a design and build element or of the of the contract. But we have relationships we're building with quite a few consultants that we go to that know that we know how we want to work, and we're also being able to uh, being able to actually work with them. And so I think that's all part of the process. Okay. And in terms of your insurances, then separate, you have your development company, your architects company. Yeah, they are just entirely separate. So the, right. the architects, architects has its own PI, and the development business has, for example, a contractor's or risk policy. The returns are obviously worth it, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it, I guess. So what is it that's the biggest stress factor for you as a, as a business, as a development business? What's the thing that keeps you awake at night? Um, well, for me, it's managing the, the finances. And, but I'm not awake, I'm not awake at night very often. But when I am, it's to do with, it'll be some aspect of the project finance, probably. This is specific to a specific job. Yeah, yeah. it'll be something that I'm managing. Yeah. It's constant problem management, you know, you, you think everything's going up in flames and then you, you manage it and everything's okay again. Particularly after you, particularly at three o'clock in the morning when the night terrors. But by the, by the morning, you're in the shower, you're like, I've, I've figured out a way to sort this out, you know, so it's, uh, it's like any business. Starting what we've done is, has been a hard, the hardest learning curve that I've ever been on in terms of what it is. There's so many, it's very, it is, it is stressful. You know, there's lots of terms that you don't really understand. You, what you think that you can basically do some nice, you know, you're, you go to architecture wanting to do beautiful design and not touch, not read a book and not actually, do, not, not have any other issues at all. You end up basically writing, and now you end up writing legal documents and specifications half the time. And also managing, managing people and managing our team and working out the process and resourcing and all the things that you probably don't know. So. Your pressure comes on to you quite quickly, I think, and you realise that when you were working for a firm, all of this pressure was sort of away from you and you were left to do your own work, and now we're having to take that pressure away from our guys. Yeah, I I think what I'm I'm trying to say is rather than you as a person, it's more that were you to be giving advice to somebody who wants to do this themselves, having gone through it with the night sweats and everything, what would you kind of say are the kind of pitfalls, things to be wary about... Not on a personal level, people can handle stress differently in different occasions, but are there certain things that you really would say, be careful? I think don't worry about risk too much. I think risk is something to be managed. I think also we're not putting everything on black. You know, we're sort of basically, we're actually putting things into various different pots so that if one of them basically doesn't do so well, hopefully the other one will do slightly better. I think from a development side, and I think it's the same thing as our diversification within our architecture business where we've got a really nice spread of different different projects and I think that in its own right has different markets and different things to try yeah. and do it and rather than concentrating and specialising and I think that's something that's been very useful. That diversification covers the ups and downs of one particular sector? Yeah, or project. Or project. That would be a piece of advice not to be a residential developer but to do residential with a bit of commercial I think, I think you need to. Know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, I don't know about that. I think. I think. Well, we're talking about. We're talking about diversification across everything that we do. Yeah. So you know, we have. We have. We have. We have diversification across our architecture. Architecture client base. So commercial, refurb, commercial, new build, residential, new yeah. build, affordable, yeah. new build. A, a range of different. A range of different sectors. But um, 
in the development side, I think probably you do need a bit more focus. You do need to know what you're doing. You can't just say, right, let's try loads of different things. But we have got we have got projects which are, we are moving a lot more into mixed use projects where we've got an element of commercial and then residential within the same development. And I think those are those are very interesting because they have different ways of being able to be funded, but also the way that actually they start to um, they they really help to try and actually balance some of those some of those ups and downs as well. Yeah, I mean maybe you don't want to encourage the competition, but what I'm trying to say is that you've gone through building you know the blood and sweat of your own toil to create those initial original apartments and working through all that, presumably learning as you were on the job to get to the stage that you're at now. I'm saying it's in the course of that rather than encouraging everybody to do that route, is there now a shortcut, something you've, you've learned, you can now say to yeah, a new practice? Yeah, there definitely is, and it's using your skills as an architect, trading those for, uh, for value, right? So trading, trading your, your architecture, um, you know you create value through the planning process, so negotiate with a landowner, and they will offer, if you're prepared to take some risk, the same sort of risk that they're prepared to take, then you deserve more reward, and that's, that's it. So it's a, you do need to... You do need to welcome risk, like Will says. Then you will get more reward, and that's that's what that's that, that's what the advice I would give. It doesn't need you to have a million pounds in your pocket to go and do that. You've already been trained as an architect. No, that's good, isn't it? Because obviously, uh, I think we mentioned this uh, when we were chatting earlier. Was in fact what you seem to be describing is actually reclaiming the value that the architect creates much more. Yeah, I think the, we, we, we create massive value on site. We can see what's there and we're, we're basically there being able to, you know, put forward a, a, a bigger building, you know, sort of more mass, you know, sort of something that's basically going to create a value on that value. And I think being able to be part of that value and being able to see that, if you can do it for a client, you should be able to do it for yourself. And I think, but it's having your team around you that basically allows you to make that, sort of make that decision. But I think it's also not necessarily taking steps, taking small steps to basically understand how you're growing. And I think it's sort of, we, we haven't decided to go into, we haven't decided to grow very, really quickly and trying to charge forward and trying to basically go for the biggest site possible. We've actually been taking a number of different steps to being able to allow us to grow slowly and uh, conscientiously, I think. Okay, good. I'm guessing you kind of recommend it for architects. I think architects should, should be doing more, taking more risk. Yeah, I think it should be. I think it's a balanced approach. I think it's good to have a diversification. So if you're being paid as a, as a, by your client, that's kind of more a low, a low risk. But twinning that with a bit more risk, diversification is a good thing. Good, I like that. And is there, so any big finish, anything that I've missed out, you want to get the message across? about yourselves, about this entire process? I think, that, I think I, personally, I think it's not to be too scared by it. We, as architects, we take risk in terms of details. We take all sorts of risk in terms of trying out new, new, uh, new materials and, and in the way that we actually design. But we seem to shy away from taking risk on in other in other sectors of what we actually met, we can do and what we you know uh, I think as a practice we're trying to basically bring back into that. And I think so. If we're already taking risk in certain things and trying to read, sort of looking at new glazing typologies, they're terrifying. If you actually look at what they're actually what they could do to you. So if you're, you're already taking risk, so just taking a slightly different angle. As an aside, do you think you minimise the amount of paperwork that you do by combining all those actions? It's like we're saying you don't have a professional services contract for the architect because you are the architect. I mean, like in terms of health and safety risk assessments, which you then pass on to a contractor and pass on to the... I think the health and safety is one not to shy away from. So I think that's probably something we learned early on science is that we can, you can't leave it to chance. 
so we now we we employ a separate health and safety consultant to do site audits on all of our sites once right. a month. They go in un, unannounced, audit the site um, because that's not our professional. You know, we are architects, but do are we professionals at health and safety? No. So we have an independent company that audits our sites for us. So that's important. Good. So you hear it here first, get rid of the risk where you don't like it, keep it where it pays dividends. That's all we've got time for at Wimshurst Hallerity, a fascinating practice uh, here in South London with a growing portfolio and growing influence. That's all for now. Please visit the website or search for professional practice podcasts on SoundCloud and iTunes and listen to other experts on a wide range of topics in the archive. Contact me at Kingston School of Art. Till the next time, all the very best. Thank you very much. Goodbye.